This week's Security Ledger podcast is sponsored by NetScout Systems. NetScout protects digital business services against disruptions in availability, performance, and security. By combining patented smart data technology with smart analytics, NetScout provides vital real-time visibility and insights customers need to accelerate and secure digital transformation strategies. NetScout transforms the way organizations plan, deliver, integrate, test, and deploy services and applications. Check them out at netscout.com. This is the Security Ledger Podcast, and I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger, in this week's episode of the podcast number 161. Today, you know, on a daily basis, there are 20,000 unique samples that we're seeing and using other exploits that bolstered capability from where we started in 2016 with, with the Mirai botnet. August marked the three-year anniversary of the discovery of the Mirai botnet, and this month and next mark anniversaries of that botnet's most notable attacks, including the 2016 takedown of the website of security journalist Brian Krebs and the October 2016 attack on Dyne, a managed DNS hosting firm that supported some of the largest technology companies in the world. Mirai was notable for its use of Internet of Things devices like digital video recorders and webcams to carry out massive denial of service attacks. Those attacks certainly raised the awareness of the threat posed by Internet-connected stuff, But all that awareness has done little to stem the tide of DDoS attacks. A study by the firm NetScout, in fact, observed 4 million DDoS attacks in just the first six months of 2019. That was a 34% jump from the same period in 2018. What's going on? One thing is that denial-of-service technology has been democratized, making it available to even unskilled attackers. To discuss that trend and the jump in DDoS attacks, we invited Hardik Modi, the Senior Director of Threat Intelligence at the firm NetScout, in to talk to us. In this conversation, Hardik and I talk about the factors contributing to the growth of denial of service attacks and why very large DDoS attacks actually seem to be waning. We also discuss the impact that emerging technologies like 5G are going to have on the Internet of Things threat landscape. To start off, I asked Hardik to talk about NetScout's latest threat report and what it thinks is behind the jump in distributed denial of service attacks that it observed in the first half of 2019. My name is Hardik Modi. I am Senior Director for Threat Intelligence at NetScout. We at NetScout consider ourselves to be the the guardians of the connected world. You know, I happen to run the Threat Intelligence Organization. It's my team's job to use this visibility that we have to maintain awareness and cognizance across what is happening on the threat landscape as it might affect our customers. And basically, through the analysis that we conduct on the data that we collect, you know, we're able to deliver this assurance and security that customers expect from our products. The threat intelligence team is responsible for educating our customers and, you know, the community at large on what we're observing. And you, uh, being NetScout, recently came out with a threat report that extracts intelligence from the uh, data that you collect on behalf of your customers and found in the report a pretty alarming jump across a number of different categories of malicious activity, in particular uh, denial of service attacks. Could you talk about that report? First of all, what NetScout found, you know, as you look back over the past few months in the threat landscape? Of course. So the NetScout security business, we observed just short of 4 million distinct DDoS attacks in the first six months of the year. And this represents a 39% increase in uh, attack frequency from the same period 
a year ago. I mean, the one thing that that we, you know, as longtime observers of the the DDoS threat landscape, you know, we we regularly get to get to comment on, say, attacks that are that are you know significant in terms of size. So we were the ones who reported on the 1.7 terabit per second attack uh, that was that was a, that we reported on in March of 2018, the largest DDoS attack uh, on record, like in in, in terms of bits per second um, so far. Uh, and and you know there had been a a, a real jump in very large scale attacks in, in the first half of 2018 timeframe, largely attributable to vulnerabilities that had been published in enterprise kind of open source software called Memcached. Coming into 2019, you know, we we observed that there weren't quite as many large attacks. And this, we think, is as a result of, in particular, large service providers, carriers taking action to tamp down on, you know, Memcached-based attacks. And that there hasn't been another vulnerability that could have been exploited or has been exploited in quite the same way to, to lead to, to attacks of that size. However, you know, we, we noticed a very large jump in attacks in the 100 to 400 gigabit per second range. Now, these are, this is in fact a range that a few years ago would have been the very top end of attacks, but now, you know, represents what we think of as this kind of juicy middle, largely driven by what we think of as a democratization of the DDoS landscape, essentially services that are widely available on the internet that allow you to launch attacks you know, at targets of your choice for relatively low cost. Paul, we think that's what's really driving the the, the jump in attacks, the 39% that we reported on in the, in the threat intelligence report. So we think about uh, the Mirai botnet as the sort of granddaddy of the IoT botnets. But you say that that's really become the sort of foundation for other IoT-based botnets and also that, you know, Mirai is kind of the go-to platform, even to this day, even two years later, that um, many of the uh, large IoT-based, Internet of Things-based attacks you see are using Mirai or Mirai variants. Um, talk about sort of the legacy of the the Mirai attack. Right. I mean, so I guess you could say is the granddaddy of IoT malware in like more ways than one. Two years old, a granddaddy, but yes, right? Yeah, yeah. No, but also, also, also like, you know, right now, the landscape is essentially the spawn of Mirai. I mean, famously in, in 2016, as the authors and operators of the botnet felt like law enforcement was closing in on them, they published source code to the original Mirai, you know, to an open platform on the internet. And then, you know, that has then led to a number of other botnets, you know, originally using, you know, lightly modified versions of that same source code. But now, you know, over time, you know, there's there's any number of other families that we have seen kind of being used that are clearly derived from the original Mirai botnet. So we've talked about a number of these families in the report, names like, you know, uh, Ares and Jaku and Rikai that are all these variants of Mirai that in 2019 are still hugely impactful. And one of the ways in which we've quantified the prevalence of Mirai is in just a sheer number of samples. Today, you know, on a daily basis, there are 20,000 unique samples that we're seeing and using other exploits that bolstered capability from where we started in 2016 with, with the Mirai botnet. So the, the legacy is, is vast. Uh, and continues to be impactful to this day with multiple variants and what we assume to be uh, numerous operators, like separate independent operators uh, running botnets, you know, that are that are based on the original Mirai source code. 
We've seen um, sort of increasing warnings about, I guess, what we would talk about as Internet of Things-based threats and and infrastructure, the kind of growing reliance on IoT devices. What's behind this? Is it merely that these devices are just really prevalent now and easy to attack? uh, Or is there something else out there, some other reason why increasingly cyber criminals are gravitating towards these non-traditional endpoint devices? I mean, I I think it's exactly that. It's, you know, prevalence, certainly, the ease which like you know of which these can be you know compromised uh in part i'd point to how you know often devices they they ship or installed or are installed you know kind of ready for compromise uh if you just kind of think about the number of vendors the number of suppliers for this equipment you know there is no standard for updates so even like packages that do get deployed they start out vulnerable and then they can they remain vulnerable uh, I would I would also kind of go on from there to the the ease at which they can be compromised is a testament to the complexity of these devices. You know, I mean, they're easy to put together, but fairly complex to manage and maintain. And as a result, they do not typically they are not managed and maintained. And so, some of the vulnerabilities that we talk about in the report are are really in software packages that you know you wouldn't necessarily want deployed on a device that is exposed to the internet. Uh, and yet they are, and they're, un, they're again unpatched, easy to discover, and hence you know easy to use in in an attack. You're listening to the Security Ledger podcast. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Netscout. Netscout protects digital business services against disruptions in availability, performance, and security. By combining patented smart data technology with smart analytics, Netscout provides vital real-time visibility and insights customers need to accelerate and secure digital transformation strategies. Netscout transforms the way organizations plan, deliver, integrate, test, and deploy services and applications. Check them out at netscout.com. We wrote recently on the um, uh, Cyber Independent Test Lab survey of firmware that went back you know, 13 years and you know, 6,000 different firmware types that found basically no net improvement in security over that time. So, uh, you know, I, I'm, uh, I know what your thoughts are, but it strikes me when mm-hmm. one of the big problems that, that one of the big differences between, let's say, Windows and the firmware world is that, you know, with Windows, you had Bill Gates and Microsoft that saw their reputation at stake in the security of Windows and Office and IE and so on, and, and obviously put a lot of resources towards really securing those platforms. And But we haven't really seen a similar response from D-Link and uh, Linksys and uh, Netgear and the hundred other you know device makers that are out there. You're right. I mean, and, and those those three that you just named are the brands that we recognize that you would think could be like named and shamed. And yes, you know, it's not always effective, but those are vendors who have something to lose. Uh, a whole lot of devices that that we see used in these in these attacks are from like you know brands that you know, I, I would not know, like you know who Avtech is. The fact of the matter is that even if we did know who Avtech was, you know, they're likely not the vendor making. The, the device, you know, it's possible that somebody else is the OEM and, you know, it's just white labeled with, with a brand. And, you know, there's a, somebody who has a supply chain distribution platform in which they can sell, you know, the, these, say, IP cameras or DVRs online and hence, you know, uh, you know, have at least something of a presence on the internet. The people who are actually building the devices are, you know, pretty much unknown to the world. 
regulation isn't the answer to everything, but you know, I mean, at least from my standpoint, I don't see another way to get there, given the the consequences yeah. of these devices being available on the internet. Like you know, we've seen already, and I think we will continue to see. One of the things you talked about is somewhat frighteningly increasing evidence that you've seen in the telemetry you've uh, you know collected of. Uh, attackers who are able to reach and compromise devices, IoT devices, behind the firewall. So um, this would be, and obviously there are many more of those than there are publicly addressable IoT devices. What's behind that phenomenon? Yeah, so so I'd say that our reporting in this area kind of dates back to 2017 when we, uh, a member of my team spoke at DEF CON about um, uh, Windows, like, you know, sort of variants of malware that we had seen. And this, this later included like, you know, Mirai where, you know, really, uh, you know, something that's sitting on a window system and scanning the local network for uh, vulnerable devices. And this was, you know, when we first saw this, we were kind of scratching our head going like, okay, you know, how many, you know, there's only so many of these that are exposed to the internet. Why would you do that? And then of course it dawned on us that this is not, this was not meant to be, you know, searching for devices on the internet, but actually on, on local networks. There's certainly that class of device, you know, back then we, you know, we had, we had seen malware that had DDoS capabilities kind of do this. These were, these were like, you know, kind of samples that we found in online kind of public repositories of malware. So not like an in the wild attack, but it was, it was, it was, you know, frightening enough to us to, to go, to go talk about, uh, in, in, uh, you know, certainly at conferences in, in the 17, 2017, early 2018 timeframe. And then since then, there have been a few other uh, exposures, uh, you know, and, and incidents involving, uh, you know, IoT malware that, that, that has led us to believe that, yes, you know, the adversary is reaching behind the firewall. Uh, you know, again, it, often when, when we say firewall, you know, this is often a a home router that also, you know, has serves a firewall functionality, and of course, a thousand other capabilities. Since some of which allow for the bypass of sort of that core firewalling capability, and so this then lets you get to IoT devices behind. And now, yeah, you know, think about like you know network attached storage um, and devices like that with capabilities like that uh, that you know can be quite sensitive. Lots, yeah. lots of those out there. Lots of those out and there. And right. yes, you know, that's that's kind of where uh, we're seeing some of the landscape kind of shift. You do a fair amount of research, as do other security companies, but, you know, monitoring, tracking, uh, observing, you know, advanced persistent threat groups. And you know, one of the conclusions of your most recent uh, report is that there are more of these than ever before and that they're more active. I was really kind of surprised by how many, I think you, you guys talked about 24 different countries now that have APT groups active. Um, talk, talk just a little bit about the growth that you've seen uh, at NetScout just in the advanced persistent threat activity. Yeah, so this is advanced persistent threat, also kind of nation state, um, also kind of thought of as nation state, either directed uh, or affiliated activity. So more activity around, you know, of a strategic nature. And part of the, 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 the finding that we're reporting on is just how much we're seeing that merge in as a standard tool of statecraft. So this is, you know, you, 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 you operate a government, you know, you're 
part of your responsibility is 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 security for your nation and as part of that like a is, you know standard part of the repertoire is uh a you know a cyber but certainly defense but also a cyber offense capability and i think i think it was a uh, uh, just a few years ago that you know kind of well respected nonprofit had reported that upwards of 50 nations had official like uh, offensive programs as part of their their you know i think largely their national sort of militaries uh and and you know it, it bears the reason that that these that these capabilities aren't lying dormant they're being used uh and you know they're being used for all the reasons that one does cyber i mean it's you know espionage for sure you know keeping tabs on uh you know strategic adversaries you know in some in some cases like allies too um and and understanding what they're up to and you know you know you know in the case of clear adversaries you know this can uh this can extend to you know maintaining a presence uh persistence within within their environments mm-hmm. you know we 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 in the united states are now well uh educated on disinformation and misinformation campaigns so yes you know in the report itself we talk about 24 separate nation states we're seeing either as targets or you know operators of you know apt groups and we in fact dive into uh, a couple of nations where you know you know you might have a few years ago kind of have awareness around like you know for example india having like you know one group and you know in here we get to talk about six separate groups that we think are again either affiliated with in some form or directly operated from you know inside india and absolutely being used in their case kind of near neighborhood uh like you know in the the general kind of geography just to maintain well at least what we could see as you know espionage campaigns I mean, one of the points you make, which I think is really interesting, is that you know attribution is is difficult with APT groups, not only because you know um, a lot of them use the same infrastructure, so there's always kind of plausible deniability, uh, but you also point out that often countries, particularly ones that are maybe newer to the game, will simply repurpose the malware that they've been targeted with and use it for their own offensive cyber operations, either against whomever attacked them or somebody else. So there's this kind of um, sharing of these attack platforms and malware families, you know, among and between the various countries that are doing, you know, offensive cyber ops. I mean, the stakes are are getting higher for all of this, right? I mean, you can certainly imagine a cyber conflict turning into a kinetic conflict. Um, so how do we get comfortable with the idea that we even understand who's behind any particular incident if what we're used to using as the proof are, you know, what, you know, malware family are they using, what command and control infrastructure, what's their, you know, MO of the attack and all this stuff that, you know, is easy to fake or create a false false front with. So you're right, Paul. I mean, none of none of these are are sufficient in themselves. And, you know, I've you know, I've either worked for or been an observer of like, you know, you know, companies that have been or entities, sorry, that have been publishing reports that, you know, do, you know, fairly, you know, make bold attribution claims now for, you know, the better past of the last decade. Uh, and, you know, you know, I, I'd say that what was sufficient in 2012, you know, in terms of, you know, you know, claims that one would make around attribution, you know, they're, they're by no means are they sufficient now in, say, 2019. And yes, you know, not, you know, responsible 
kind of researchers, certainly, you know, whether private sector or elsewhere, um, you know, would not go ahead and make an attribution claim strictly off of, you know, here's, here's a particular malware that we've seen used, or here's an exploit that we've seen used, here's command and control. So these, these risks do exist, like a misattribution. I think, I think for us on the, the reporting side, you know, it's, it's, um, it's important that we are kind of being consistent and clear in terms of communicating our confidence around these findings and where, you know, if there is, you know, where there's, where we are aware of uh, contra indicators, something that points to points in a different direction, either we are being explicit about those contra indicators or we're, we're, we're expressing them in the form of the, the level of confidence that we're associating with a specific finding. So we do, you know, so that that certainly is true across the board. I will say that for uh, governments and this, you know, this kind of be, be usually comes to light in the public domain more when like, you know, say uh, the Department, U.S. Department of Homeland, Homeland Security or the Department of Justice, for example, you know, they publish some kind of attribution findings. They're often pointing to mm-hmm. a broader set of activity that they that, that they have observed and that they are using as the basis for such attribution. And I think that that kind of points to the future for us. I think for those for those who observe intrusions, there's a, a broader set of like, you know, TTPs that one can observe behavior on the part of the, the adversary and use that to infer attribution. Then say, you know, we found a piece of malware, you know, hence it must be a new group. Right. So, you know, and I can tell you that Netscout Threat Intelligence, like, we take this very seriously. And then in the report itself, we talked about like, you know, where, where sometimes the groups themselves grow larger than, you know, what we had known them to be. And then also there's observer bias. Like, you know, we get to see some part of the activity that the group is conducting and hence from there kind of arrive at our own deductions, but that we can't always claim to have kind of a full spectrum view of all of their activity. One of the developments we're all tracking in, in the U.S. and Europe and China and Japan uh, other developing nations is the emergence of kind of 5G infrastructure and the you know all the promise that that brings with it in terms of you know bandwidth and new applications and services that are possible. Um, obviously, it's going to really have there's there's a security angle to this as well, which is you know more bandwidth for more connected devices, you know, bigger botnets and so on. What should we understand about kind of what impact 5G and 5G adoption is going to have on, you know, the cyber threat landscape and the types of attacks that we've been talking about uh, in this report? Yeah, so I think, you know, 5G is, you know, it's exciting in the in that broader availability of high-speed, you know, wireless infrastructure. I mean, that in itself is is something that you know, I look forward to. But there are a number of dynamics that are built into how 5G networks are being designed that, you know, is, is sort of giving pause to those of us who think about, like, you know, cybersecurity. Uh, and I should point out that the, the U.S. You know, Department of Homeland Security, in particular, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, published like a really useful, uh, you know, sort of characterization of risks. Uh, in this, and I'd encourage everyone to go take a look at that. Just Google for CISA uh, 5G wireless networks, and and there's a little infographic that they that they published. Uh, and you know they point to how you know there's just between the supply chain, uh, the 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 very nature of deployments, 
the you know there's just a network security within within this uh, and then and then ultimately the vendor set like you know we're we're seeing a whole bunch of new uh, points of vulnerability as they put it emerge uh, with 5g you know I think one of the things that 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 I you know we would point to is just the rise of edge computing where you're going to have a whole lot more computing you know essentially cloud computing infrastructure that's closer that's more distributed that then kind of open up its you know its own kind of surface area the end user devices and 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 then in particular with the networks the fact that you know there's a smaller set of vendors that are able to deliver these networks you know at scale and with quality that then you know kind of bring on their own set of risks i think i think the us government thinking through how much to do with say huawei is an example of like you know one of the the, the risks i mean you could you could say you know huawei is a large telecom equipment you know provider worldwide but in particular in 5g you know they kind of look like they could get sure. uh, like firmly embedded in the infrastructure of telecom infrastructure worldwide that just opens up its own set of like an you know, espionage and control risks i think i think that's where a lot of us are thinking about you know when it comes to 5g Final question, you know, for companies or, you know, folks who are our listeners who might be working at organizations that, uh, you know, consume this type of information, you know, your customers, um, how do you how do you connect the dots for them um, between the types of information about threats, DDoS, APT that are, you know, in your uh, threat report and things that actually they can do, you know, locally within their organization to make them less um, vulnerable to these types of uh, ad- adverse incidents. Yeah. So, Paul, what we what we do at Netscout is just look, you know, aim to build awareness around threat activity, and in particular, what we think of as situational awareness. You know, you don't want to just certainly you want to know what's happening to yourselves, but also outside of that, you know, you want to know what's happening to people such as yourselves, like you know, elsewhere in the world. It could be a, a you know financial institution, and you'd want to know what's happening to other financial institutions in your geography, or maybe even worldwide. And you know, for that, you know, we have you know there there are two things that we do that I, I'd like to point to. One is that yes, absolutely, we publish reports such as the NetScout Threat Intelligence Report. You know, it's it's available. We've made it we've made it actually free to download. You don't need to register with us to see the report. Just go to like you know www.netscout.com/threatreport. You know, we recognize that. You know the landscape is dynamic and is constantly evolving, and right. we don't want to just be talking about it once every six months. So to address that, we've launched a more of a real-time platform that we're calling Cyber Threat Horizon. This is to enable you to maintain visibility into what's happening over the horizon. You know, it's not just like I said earlier, like what's happening to you, but what's happening over the horizon to people such as yourselves. And so horizon.netscout.com is mm-hmm. where you can find Cyber Threat Horizon. It's an online platform. There's certainly like a few ways in which we visualize the attacks that we're that we're observing. So through the form of maps, but also we have these canned reports. And so if you wanted to know, like, you know, how many DDoS attacks and of what size it's happened in the past month in, say, Australia, you know, that's pretty easy to get to, you know, with Cyber Threat Horizon. Uh, and encourage everybody who's listening to this this recording to both, you know, certainly check out our threat report, but also Cyber Threat Horizon. Hardik Modi, the Senior Director of Threat Intelligence at NetScout. Thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on Security Ledger Podcast. Paul, I really appreciate the opportunity and thank you. 
Hardik Modi is a senior director of threat intelligence at NetScout. He was here to talk about NetScout's latest threat intelligence report. You've been listening to the Security Ledger podcast. This episode of the podcast was sponsored by NetScout. NetScout protects digital business services against disruptions in availability, performance, and security. By combining patented smart data technology with smart analytics, NetScout provides vital real-time visibility and insights customers need to accelerate and secure digital transformation strategies. NetScout transforms the way organizations plan, deliver, integrate, test, and deploy services and applications. Check them out at netscout.com. 